G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Nevena Matanovic, who is doing a PhD in English Language and Literature under the supervision of Dr. Leslie Ritchie. Welcome to Grad Chat, Nevena. Thank you. The reason I wanted to bring Nevena onto the show is that she's doing some fascinating research into 18th century theatre. And as you know, when it comes to English language and literature, there's all sorts of areas that they can get into. Unbeknownst to me in the beginning, when I just thought it was Chaucer, Shakespeare and the Bronte sisters. But of course, there's a lot more to it than that. And Nevena's research is 18th century theatre, ageing actress on the long 18th century London stage. What a great title. I love that title. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what is your research actually about? All right. So so when we talk about the long 18th century, I like to look at things from 1660 to 1815. So that's... Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. 1667 is when the theaters reopened in London. Okay. And what happened at that point was the king who was returning was Charles II, and he had been in France, where they had actresses on the stage. So when he came back to London, he introduced actresses to the stage, and that's why I'm really interested in the 18th century, because it's the first time we see women as players on the London stage. Oh, okay. So even so, it was 1650s, which to me is the 17th century, but I guess that's why you say long. Because long it's, 18th century. It's 100 plus. Yeah, yeah, we just steal <laughs> stuff. So we like to say things like the long 18th century is still going on. Right. Just in okay. case you just want to study whatever you want, really. <laughs> it's a way to steal things There's from other periods. always a ra- ways around it, isn't it? I just yeah. love that. Okay, let's just make it a little bit longer and people will get yeah. it. I love that. So what I'm really interested in is looking at these early actresses it's actually not the most, or at least for me, it's not the most exciting time for looking at actual texts. Like most people, when I say 18th century, can't really think of a specific play that okay. came out of that time period. So there's no specific playwright that you can think of? There that. are, they're just not as big. So you think right. of like William Witcherly, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, guys like that. But it's not Shakespeare and it's not Oscar Wilde, which is kind of the preceding and the right. and what's coming after. Right. So what I like to say is that I don't necessarily think that these are the best plays, But from a historical standpoint, I think it's kind of the most exciting time for theater development. It's when theater is being commercialized. So things like those memorabilia stands you get in theaters nowadays when you can buy programs and images of players like that's kind of building and the rise of kind of celebrity culture is building. So those are the things that I'm really excited about, like looking at the actual bodies on stage as opposed to necessarily like the texts. Right, right. So when I was reading your synopsis, you used this word, and I guess it's part of when you said theatres reopened. Yeah. Interregnum, or after the interregnum. What was the interregnum? So what that's referring to is that period where the monarchy was, well, the king was killed and the monarchy was kind of sent out of London and the Puritans were ruling Right. So when you think of like Oliver Cromwell, that's the right. Cromwellian period. And because it was a puritanical period, it's the, all of the theaters were closed. So okay. that's kind of the most significant thing for me is just thinking about what's happening 
post this period where there's absolutely no theater. So the theaters are reintroduced. And of course, one of the things that I said is that after that, it's the introduction of women on stage. Right. But it's also in response to that, you get this restoration style comedy of the late 17th century, which is really body and like lewd. Right. In response to uh, the Puritans. Okay, okay. So that also comes with the introduction of women's bodies on stage. There's this sense that, and I don't think this is kind of unheard of, but because these are women who are technically making money by displaying their bodies, there's also that connection between actresses and prostitutes. Got it. And, of course, several of the women were um, having affairs with high-profile men. So Charles II, who's the king coming back in, was having an affair with Nell Gwynne. Or he was, she was his mistress. Right. So she's on the stage all the time. So not only are you going to see women's bodies, but you're like specifically in some cases seeing the bodies of famous women in engaged in these like extramarital affairs, and there's right. this erotic tension there too. What I like to think about is you're not just going to see like Nell Gwyn as Juliet, but you're going to see the king's mistress as Juliet. Okay. So there's like this doubling there too. Double. Right. So that means then so. I mean, I know you say you're following this from when they first reopened, but why the 18th century for you? I think it's there's there's just two parts of it. So one, I really do like kind of that body nature of it and kind of things are really crass and fun in the 18th century in a way that feel changes a lot when you get to Victorian. Right, right. But also as kind of this opening area of women on stage navigating their bodies on stage, most of the things that I look at, I feel like they haven't changed at all. Okay, right. So even though the historical period is different, the ideas of just the experience that these women go through feels very current. Right, right, which which probably shows its fascination because you can have a good comparison of what's going on today. Yeah. But were they always these, were they always depicted as these, I'm assuming, women who would take their clothes off and being more like the, the prostitute, what people might think is a prostitute style, mm-hmm. or is it, it was just the way that the playwrights wrote parts for women that were very much, let's show a bit of boob or whatever. So it's it's this idea that... Or they're buxom selves. Right. It's not even just necessarily looking at um, the bodies, because obviously seeing a female body on stage is kind of, it was a big thing, but it's also their reenacting private situations in public life so even these stories of falling in love and like domestic narratives it's displaying a pub a private thing in public life so that's also has that that angle to it and sometimes it wasn't even necessarily boobs it was um women would if if they're doing breeches roles so like roles where they have to wear pants so a woman in disguise if you think of Mm -hmm. a lot of classic shakespearean plays where uh, a woman for some reason has to pretend to be a man. Yeah. Even those are kind of sexy parts because you get to see women in pants. Got so it. they're showing off their legs right. in a different way. In a different way. Yeah. It's almost it's almost too like a panto, a pantomime, isn't yeah. it? In the early days of a, of a pantomime. And, yeah. And I'm assuming Canadians know what pantomimes are. Uh, we have... I was um, brought up on pantomimes. There's... I can't remember his name, but there's a, there's an, a player who's Karen Kane husband who does one every year in Toronto oh, around okay. Christmas. Right. Yeah, cuz that's normally the time something. you saw them. Yeah. Is got to go to a pento. Yeah. And but I know the the main the main male characters were done by females and vice versa. 
So it's interesting. When I was reading your synopsis, you talked about how these female, you know, the first female players navigated, or you wanted to look at how the first female players navigated the negative reception to their aging bodies and how they represented themselves in the face of it. And also looking at the social discourse around men aging. Uh, men aging is concerned with old age, while with women the discourse is more concerned with the onset of middle age and loss of youth and sexual desirability. Well, what is significant about looking at actresses about this time? Okay, so, sorry, there's a lot of... Uh, there's there was a, a lot, lot there. Of, there's sorry a about lot that. there. That's okay. I want to start with the first thing, which mm-hmm. is this idea that it's that aging is gendered, which I don't think is something that any of us are unfamiliar with. If you look at kind of how couples are cast in movies still, you have the, you know, 30-year-old or late 20-year-old actress with Liam Neeson, as right. though that's kind of a natural pairing. Right. And I think that's also speaking to this experience from the 18th century to now, probably even before, where the parts, the capital parts, like the really good, meaty roles that are written for women mm-hmm. are these young roles. Right. And even in terms of gendered conceptions of aging, you get jokes like that all the time. And if you're watching kind of a meta theater a th- a TV show like 30 Rock, they'll say, you know, I'm 50, but 50 for men is like 30 for women. Right. So there's like this idea. And I think that's really prevalent in a lot of the work I'm looking at where the I- ideals of feminine beauty are really tied to youth. Right. So there's right. this idea that when you lose your youth, you're kind of losing part of your femininity as well. Okay. Even back in the 18th century. Yeah. yeah. So this right. is women who are over 30, uh, a lot of the times if there are parts for them, they're either, they're pictured as like sexually deviant. So either you have this kind of asexual spinster character. Right. right. Or this like super aggressive older woman. Right. So either way, it's not, it's not something like attractive. Right. That cougar versus spinster idea. But I mean, I think even cougars get a better rap than this. So so that's something that I'm interested in because this is this time when there's a celebrity culture and there's these really, really famous actresses coming out like Sarah Siddons, uh, Dora Jordan, these big names who managed to have these long careers on the stage. They're on right. the stage for 40, 40 years. So I'm trying to figure out how did they manage that in the face of this negative reception and... Part of that is also influenced by the fact that there's less plays. People go to the, the theater more often, but when you get a really good role, like if you have Lady Macbeth, you hold on to that role. Right, right. So these women aren't just playing them when they get famous and start on the theater stage, theatrical stage in, in their 20s. They hold on to that role for decades. Right. And no one else is allowed to play it at their theater. At their theater. It's kind of um, not explicitly necessarily written into their contract, but it's it's part of their... It's part of their performative property, so not like real material physical property, but something you still kind of own. Right. So I'm also interested in that idea of like how do these same roles that you're playing change over the years? And then in addition to that, thinking about the 18th century, is that the Victorian period, so after this, like the 19th century, is really known for this like increase in science and technology and learning about the body and kind of getting to a more modern idea of what the body's like. But in 18th century theatrical discourse, the way they talk about the body and the way they talk about acting is different in a way that I think impacts aging. Okay, so, in which way? So for instance, right now you think about actors like Daniel Day-Lewis and Christian Bale and those guys who do super method acting where they have to inhabit their characters. Right. And, you know, like Daniel Day-Lewis moves to Italy and becomes a cobbler for six months just to play a part because right. he has to, like, be that person. And there's a little bit of that in 18th century performance theory and 18th century actors manuals like when you play a part a lot you're you're, you have to transform parts of your body to become it right okay so that 
thinking about how physically they kind of thought about acting and how much it wasn't just playing a part but kind of becoming a part, there's ideas that it it took an impact on your body too. Okay. So maybe if you have to be melancholy all the time, and this is like keeping in some early modern ideas of like the humors, and you're producing all this black bile in your body to show melancholy, that's going to age your body. Okay. Or not only do I think it's super cool to look at what's happening when you're aging and acting, but also the ways in which acting might prematurely age you. So back in the 18th century, I mean, we see a lot of it today where actors and actresses will put on weight or lose weight according to their thing. So were they doing that in the 18th century too? Or is Uh, it more a a mindset of melancholy? and? Yeah, it's more what's physically happening inside of you and thinking about how to generate those emotions. So it's more of the idea that you're not faking those emotions, but you have to make them happen. And that takes kind of a physiological toll on you to like produce happiness, to produce melancholy. Right. In terms of gaining and losing weight, because they're playing so many different parts a week, maybe, like even in one night, they have a main piece and then probably an after piece. Okay. It doesn't make as much sense to drastically change your body. But of course there are like big costumes. My supervisor, uh, Dr. Leslie Ritchie, is actually coming out with a book in March on David Garrick, who is kind of this, the biggest acting celebrity of the time. And he's also introducing these technological things with costumes. So you see in his role as Hamlet, when he sees the ghost, he has this wig that somehow makes the hair stand up on your head. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so there's there's cool things like that happening, but in terms of people gaining weight and losing weight, right. there's still such standards on beauty that I think gaining a ton of weight would just be... Particularly for the females. Particularly for the females, but even even for the, the men, I think it's it's not a good look. So, I mean, I don't know the, the plays of the, the era that well, but the parts that the women are getting... Mm-hmm. Are they significant parts or are they just on the side parts where men are still being the, the main characters and the women are just on the side? Or do did you find any that really were able to have be, be the main person of that production? Right. So there's a lot of reuse of the Renaissance and Restoration plays in the 18th century. So we do see a lot of adaptations of Shakespeare. Okay. So Sarah Siddons, who I mentioned earlier, is known for her Lady Macbeth, especially that that sleepwalking scene. Okay. And also, you know, that that whole out damn spot part of the play. So there are really good parts. There's just they're just so few and far between. Just, right. So that's also why, with the idea of like celebrity culture in this time, you get these disp- depictions of like fierce rivalries between actresses. Okay. Because there are so there's so, so few. few parts. Right. But what I'm also really interested in is that. Sarah Siddons, who's doing these great tragic parts, and she's called the Tragic Muse. That's kind of, you know, their version of like, of calling like Julia Roberts America's sweetheart. She's the Tragic Muse. That's right. her uh, public image. I think that it's also easier to age in those parts. So one of the actresses that I'm really focused on in a couple of my chapters is Frances Abington, because she's playing these like young comic love interest parts. Okay. And I think it's so much, it seems so much harder to age when that's what you're known for. For the the young comedy. Yeah, because right. they're not writing. You can have older tragic roles, like that's that makes a little more sense, but in terms of desirability, they're not really having the comic love interest as an older woman. And and that would she then be able to switch over later to the tragic roles or is that no, that's her her place and time. Uh some actresses could do both, but it wasn't really her thing. Like she was known for right. her fashionable clothing, she was known okay. for yeah, it just, it didn't seem to be her shtick. Right. 
So, so where you where did you find some of the materials to see these perceptions that you've been talking about? Because it, I could imagine some of it would be difficult. Did you have to go to London to find some of these things, or can you find it all now through the interlibrary loans? Yeah. So a lot of it is that because I would imagine too. Sorry, there'd be posters and things that you could find that would also depict the characters. The thing about my work is that when I talk about studying English language and literature and specifically theater, I think there's this idea that I'm reading a lot of texts, that I'm reading a lot of plays and I'm reading a lot of um, Mm -hmm. novels and kind of that thing that you read when you take an English class. But I actually don't get to read any fiction, really. Oh. I tend to do, I actually do a ton of reading for fun because I don't get to read any fiction. Well, that's cool. Yeah, so what I end up reading is periodicals like I read 18th century newspaper reviews okay yes that would make sense actually so I do a ton of that which I'm super lucky in the sense that there's this uh, database the Bernie collection which we can access through the library and all of these newspapers are online and I remember when I was doing my master's my supervisor at the time was telling me that he had to go and look through everything on microflish yes which is awful terrible never done it it's horrible yeah, terrible. I don't I don't I don't know how I'd survive. So just being <laughs> you able need good to glasses. like Yeah. Just being able to like search this database online has been a lifesaver. So it's things like that. It's also memoirs, Smart. anonymous pamphlets that are written. So not only do you get the the true account of so and so's life, but there's also all these anonymous kind of slandering ones right, right. that are fun to read. There's also, as you said, like the paintings. Right. When you're going to the art gallery in the 18th century, it's kind of really cool that previous to this it would be painting of an actress, and at this time you're actually getting painting of perhaps like Sarah Siddons as the tragic muse. Right. So these actors are actually getting these beautiful representations of them. And then there's also, in addition to the beautiful paintings in the style of, you know, sometimes classical Greek or them in their famous roles, there's also caricatures. That'd be fascinating to yeah. see how they were characterized. Yeah, so you get some some body characters. So this was so you said a lot of this was through the Bernie collection, was yeah. that correct? That's that's where the newspapers are. Oh, okay. And this is housed in London or Oh gosh, that's a good question. So the database is just online. I have no idea where it is right now. Oh right, okay. But he so, someone obviously collected it and, and compiled, and compiled it. it. Yeah, and it's it's insane. There's like a hundred years of newspapers and the amount of newspapers they had at the time was a lot. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's it's crazy to go through, and it's still kind of it can still kind of be a nightmare, but it's it's great. Well, I guess if you can hone into a couple of actresses, like you said, then then at least you can look at just them and, and pinpoint those with the with the data searches you can do now. Yeah, you can you can definitely do that. Um, you just end up with, you know, thousands and thousands of results. They have to go through to right. see if it's, um, for the most part, if you look up an actress's name, it's just the cast list of a play reprinted a lot of times. Okay. So you have to kind of, like, go through all go of through those. That. Yeah. But and that's the kind of material that I'm interested in. And also, like, letters from the time, too. Right. So when I mentioned Garrick before, his letters have been compiled and printed, and we have, like, a nice old copy in the Jordan. That you oh, can is that right? Through. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah, so there's things like that, and then I also have been using a lot of uh, modern performance theory lately. So that's that's one of the angles that I'm looking at. Obviously, because I work on women, I like to use a lot of gender theory. But right. uh, lately, I've been looking at a lot of modern performance theory and thinking about how some of the ideas we're familiar with were also echoed 
in a lot of this 18th century criticism and memoirs and reviews. So, so that actually comes on to my next, my next question. You know, what are the connections to present-day conceptions of ageing, particularly for actresses? One of the things that has been really interesting is that there's this really great st- part of academia that's kind of flourishing right now, which is age studies. Right, right. So being able to use modern concepts of aging that are really familiar and thinking about how I see that kind of reflected in the 18th century has been really cool. So being able to bridge 18th century theater, which is its own beast with lots of great scholarship, and then looking at mo- uh, these, this new field of age studies and how that's how those two intersect. There's a lot of things going on now about, isn't it great that more female actresses are getting major roles Mm -hmm. or or movies and things are being made for women in particular. So all that is going on. And and even on TV with the radio broadcasters, you would never, it's changing now, but you'd have an older man might be an anchor, but the women always had to be the young women and and things like that. Although that is, like I said, now it's changing Mm -hmm. where you can stay. But in terms of theatre, has the the leading roles for women changed in, or and the perceptions of what the what the female actresses can do, has it changed in theatre from the 18th century? Looking at you know what, you know how do we perceive these women? What are the in in terms of ageing and and all that sort of, and the sort of critiques that they may get because of their age or their physicality? I want to be positive and say that things are better because right. they can't be worse right <laughs> um, but I, I don't think it it doesn't seem like it's great still no, I mean there's yeah. still a long way to go but at least there's you know yeah I mean you just look at all the the award shows that have been going on yeah. you know more women are getting recognized for yeah. their work and one of the ideas that I thought was really cool looking at this modern age studies is that even when you're talking about older women having fame even when you're talking about um women who are excelling in their older age, whatever age Mm -hmm. that might be, is part of this recent chapter I was working on was thinking about this idea of agelessness and how a lot of the times that's attached to successful aging and attached to successful older women. Okay. But that when you're talking about agelessness, it's not actually celebrating an older woman. It's kind of denying their age in, in order to celebrate them. Okay. So like in order to say Meryl Streep is great, looks great at 60 it's she does or 70 don't even know how old she's she's 70 now yeah yeah it's it's that she doesn't even look 70 as though looking 70 is somehow flawed right so it's it's that there's that denial i think where that in order to be successful you kind of have to erase a bit of your history and a bit of the age so someone like a betty white yes who's in her 90s looking fabulous yes still working yes in her 90s and still has a following Mm mm-hmm how would you perceive her? I think that so much of that is focused on her age, though. It's that, and it's in a comic lens, because right? Because it's the longevity of yeah. her career. And-, and when she does something, and when she's kind of like funny and wild and maybe sexually sexually suggestive, it's, yes. it's funny because of her it's age. Because it's cute. Yeah, yeah, like there's nothing, it's it's not a desirable, it's right. not, per, like, it's not Harold and Maude where you have the older lady and the younger man falling in love. That's a, right. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. Uh, Harold and Maude. It's like an eighties, eighties, seventies, eighties movie about a geriatric woman who falls in love with like a late teenage boy. Okay, but it's not. I don't think Betty White's public image is depicted that way. She's kind of she's very funny, and she's so great in all the roles she gets. But they're so focused on how old she is, right? And 
how she's doing things that are not typically seen in someone of her age. Okay. And and then so somewhat so a man of that age, how are they Well, the thing that I always like to think about is I mean, I grew up in the nineties and I always think of that movie Entrapment where you have like sixty nine year old Sean Connery mm-hmm. falling in love with Catherine Zeta Jones in her twenties. Right. And it's it's not a thing. Like it's, it's not, not it's not brought to the forefront. Like he, he has and, and even that like language of like, well, he has salt and pepper hair, he's mature, but that's still right. not, it doesn't have the negative connotations of age. I think that's, that's still in the forefront. And that's one of the things that is talked about a lot in age studies is kind of age as a marker of identity. When, when I'm teaching, especially like, I think it's super important to be intersectional in my approaches to talking about like identity and characters. So thinking about the characters and their gender, their sex, their sexuality, their race, but then also to think about age. Right, right. As one of those intersections as well, right. and how it intersects with class, how it intersects with race and gender. So for, of course, for my work, the intersection with gender is kind of at the forefront, but I think that it's also just letting age be another marker of identity that's significant enough to talk about. Do you think it'll ever come to a stage where we will be able to just see actresses for their work? I know it's a loaded question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. But I are, think are we moving in the right direction, or are we st- is it still underneath? It's when you're talking about things like the award shows and how much language there is around them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we'll see what the actual practical results are, as opposed to just the theoretical discourse and like right. the the language about celebrating women. Uh, instead, let's see, like if they actually get more roles, if those roles are actually nominated for the big awards, if Glenn Close finally wins this year. Right. I want to see the the results and not the rhetoric. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Thinking of this this thing in in terms of age, like I don't think that I'm immune to that too. You know, I think that always that's always in my head and always like figuring out. Well, I I always see, I mean, I see the, particularly the actresses Mm -hmm. who I've, I've been watching as a young kid and so I'm growing old so yeah. to speak with them and I still admire them and I go you know those you know those actresses actresses and at times I do say that actors as well they still got it they still yeah. I mean and I've I liked them before and I still like them because they know how to act yeah and they know they know their profession mm-hmm. and even even I fall into the thing that you know they're just doing so well. But what I do is say it's so nice that they're still getting these roles mm. to play. Yeah, because they could easily have been chucked out. Right, and I think that what you speak to about growing up with them is also something that I'm really interested in looking at. Right, and the example that I use is that Angela Lansbury has obviously been on stage for her entire life. Yes, because she loves movies. the theater. And in movies and TV, she was acting in Gaslighting when she was like in her late teens, early 20s, and she's still showing up and acting. Yeah. And I remember I went to go see her in Blythe Spirit, and she was about 90. And you see her, and I, I grew up with Murder, She Wrote, so that's kind of the Angela Lansbury I'm used to. Right. But even just seeing her in uh, Noah Coward's Blythe Spirit, which is a really animated physical role where she has to, she plays like a, she's, what's it called, the woman who does a seance. Oh, um, like a soothsayer type person. Yeah, and she's uh, she's very theatrical. She's jumping around a lot, and you still have that sense in you when you're thinking, oh, she's doing so well for her age. Right. And I think that's what happens when you grow up with someone like that too. You right. have this inability to disconnect them from their younger self that you're used to. Right. I think you do that in music as well too when people say, you know, I'm going to go see Bob Dylan because he's Bob Dylan, but for his like he's not doing so great. Right. In terms of entertaining at this stage and his mumbly voice. So 
that's also something that I'm really interested in looking at is that this idea that when you go see someone and they're older, how are you comparing them to the memories that you have of them when they're younger? Well, see, it's interesting, though, because then there's someone like uh, Dame Judi Dench. Yeah. I've I've watched her in all her period pieces and mm-hmm. then whether she's been on the stage or, or in, the, in the movies and things or playing Shakespeare or any of those sorts of things. But I just see her... I've She's one person, I just see her as an actress, and she's grown as an actress as she's got older. For me personally, for Dame Judi Dench and Dame Maggie Smith and all yes. those older English actresses, I don't remember them when they were younger. Oh, you don't? The entire right. time I've seen them, like, since I've been watching movies, they've been right. They've been older ladies you to see, me. You have to be born a little early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm just thinking of, you know, I just... Yeah, yeah, it's so that that's the difference. So I'll be interested to see what we what is your your group that go that you follow that through. goes yeah all the way through yeah because I can't I can't think of Maggie Smith as anything but like Professor McGonagall right like that age range right. okay I mean those <laughs> movies were made over like fifteen years but she's just the same age right that, yeah my sister act all those but once again she played the old the old nun yeah she did so. <laughs> the mother superior yeah sort of thing. Okay, so before we finish, because I'm conscious of the time, because we've done a lot here, I do want to say I, I understand that you've just written your a play that is going to be in the Toronto Fringe Festival. Yeah, so I didn't actually just write it. It's a funny story. So I wrote this play when I was in high school, and it was performed a few times in my high school and actually at Queen's in undergrad. I didn't go here for undergrad, but someone I knew did. But somebody I went to high school with who is a, an actor I really respect decided that he wanted to put it on for Fringe. So this play that I wrote like 14 years ago now is now being put on at the Fringe Festival for 2019. So I'm pretty excited about that. I'm hoping that it'll go well. Oh, man, I was 16 when I wrote this. You have to, like, (laughs) give me it. So for some reason I decided that it needed a French title because I think we're all a little silly when we're 16. (laughs) <laughs> so it's called Ouvrez la porte, fermez la bouche. Open the door, shut your mouth? Yeah, it's about two people talking through a door for oh, one okay. act. Yeah, it's a comedy. That would be good, though. Yeah, so a little bit. I like that kind of physical. The props will be easy, just one door. Yeah, I really like physical comedy, and I really like... Brilliant. Yeah, silly farces, so... So uh, hopefully you're going to be there for opening night. Oh, yeah. It should be fun. Yeah, I'll see you there. <laughs> so, yeah, so when is it? So when is the French Festival? It's, uh, it's the first two weeks of July. Oh, okay. Yeah. July's a good time for me. Yeah, so, perfect. There we go. I'm going to have to go down to Toronto, and anyone else should go down and see as part of the Fringe Festival. So, ouvrez la porte, fermez la bouche. Yeah. That's that's as good I as my French accent is. <laughs> okay, never know. We're going to have to call it quits, because uh, thank you very much for coming to talk to us, and uh, good luck with everything, with not only your PhD, but also your playwriting. Who knows what's going to come next? Yeah, I might have to write again. Well, after I you've g- been studying all about playwriting playwriting and actresses and stuff like that. You it's could, hard to you multitask. Could, you might be able to create something. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me on. You're very welcome. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the podcast of this show tomorrow from the CFRC podcast channel. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.